when we're trying to instill new habits, if it's something we struggle with. So like the, the main thing there, Joe, is like, you know, depending on what your targets are relative to your goals for the program, the main thing is that like, look, you're coming under the calories. That's the, that's the kind of key priority. It's the foundation. However, sometimes it's how we come under those calories is a problem. So for a lot of people, if they skip meals during the day, what they will find is they'll end up with like low blood glucose levels, low blood sugar, and they make poorer eating decisions of an evening. So like this idea of like, oh, I don't eat much breakfast, that's kind of fine if people don't, but if they're skipping it because they're not, focused on eating their breakfast and then it goes into lunch, then a lot of people tend to struggle because they will then tend to overeat of an evening. Now, it sounds like in your situation, that isn't the case, but it's one of the, the pitfalls of skipping meals. But from a wider perspective, if we're trying to instill a new habit and that habit is important to us, firstly, we have to acknowledge why it's important, okay? So it's easy to say, like, I'm going to do more of this. Well, why do we need to do that? Because protein's going to help with muscle growth and all the things we'll talk about later on from a mechanistic perspective of why we encourage a higher protein diet. But ultimately... Two things that you can do to, to really help instill any habit. One is make them visible, right? So for example, I'm terrible for drinking water. So guess what I have sat in front of me next to my camera because I look at that all day long um, when I'm doing calls and things. So again, a habit I struggle with, visibility. The second thing, if I'm trying to remind myself because I'm a busy, a busy little onion and I haven't got time to do things, set an alarm. Set alarms to yourself as reminders. There's no shame in doing that whilst you're trying to instill some new habits and behaviors in there. You know, um, obviously the microwave dinging didn't make you go and get your oats, but still I think that it's important. And, and that doesn't just apply to nutrition. That can apply to anything when you're trying to make time for it. Put it in your calendar, put it in your schedule. If you were to look at my Google calendar, you'll see I've got slots in there for my own training. Because if I don't do that, something drifts into something else, then I don't make my health a priority. I don't make my nutrition a priority. I don't make my exercise a priority. So from a wider perspective, like if you're struggling to instill a habit, Literally set an alarm and don't be like embarrassed because it's like, oh, I should just remember to do that because it's not always easy when you're busy and you're stressed. And, you know, people have a differential stress response to um, to hunger and appetite. In most people, it will drive hunger and cravings up. In some people, it won't. It will suppress it because energy systems drive other things, which something else becomes a priority, which pulls blood away from the digestive system, which means that our hunger signals don't circulate. So all those hormones that are released from our gut that tell us we're hungry get suppressed in some people. And in fact, people who tend to overeat with stress and anxiety, it tends to be because it's the food comfort and the blood glucose uh, element rather than it being driven by hunger as well. So again, it's not, it's, it's good that you're acknowledging those things. Like I said last week, awareness of an issue is the first thing to focus on. The next thing is the strategy that comes from, from that awareness, which is, you know, like if I said to you, you had to be up at a certain time tomorrow to catch a flight, you wouldn't just go to sleep and just wing it and hope you woke up at the right time. You'd set an alarm for it. So there's nothing, you know, there's nothing to be, like ashamed of or worried about if you're noticing those things, because again, it allows us to develop strategies to, to implement those um, rather than just kind of, you know, forgetting day after day after day to do those things. Um, so yeah, just as a, a wider perspective, make things, make things as visible as possible. Yeah. Um, Good. Well, Paul, do you know, I know people, I was thinking of doing an exercise, like the weekends yeah. are a, the, probably one of the biggest issues people got. Now we do do right. Don't leave. Like, we do breakouts, but rooms. You can go off your camera. You can do. You don't have to go on your mic, but you can tap in the chat box. So as a group, you can go off into a group and speak. What went well this weekend for you, and then what didn't go well, and maybe come up with a myth or like a nutrition fact you think you believe in, something you all agree with, and we can put it to the test. Because um, that we want to talk about myths today as well. So obviously, a lot of us get caught up in myths. Now you can keep your camera off. You can don't have to go on mic. You can just chat in the chat box. Don't worry. Just a chat between yourselves. And if someone is talking, just the first person to speak is the oldest turtle member. 
whoever's been with us the longest will chat first. So are we all good on that? And then, Paul, we can have a chat then about the weekends and stuff like that. I think it's probably yeah, good. To yeah, speak yeah. About it. yeah, so also with the myths thing, just anything that you've heard, even if you don't believe it or not, but just you want to know more about to see where that stuff comes from. I'm watching the numbers while they're dropping off. Guys, come, don't, don't drop away. I'm going to find out who it is. It's fine. And Emma, thank you for that. Uh, you're going to rooms now. Hold on. It'll only be like 10 minutes. Fizz. Ooh. Right then. Um, I'm going to not join room nine. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> See you in a sec, guys. Arrivederci. <laughs> People are coming back in now. Oh, we're back in. We're back in. Back in the game. Ta-da! Ooh. <laughs> I'll do it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back, indeed. Hope you had a nice chat here. For the people who stayed, thank you very much. I know Breaker Room is the first time on Zooms and all that can be nerve-wracking, but you get the most of this community when you do do involve and speak to people. Okay, for... Hello. Oh, we're all zooming back here. Right then, who is what? Anyone speak for on behalf of a group? Any volunteers? Uh, I don't. On behalf of my group. Yeah, Jessica, go ahead. Um, I think I think to be honest, we we all had um more what worked well for us and what what didn't. Um, there was what one lady who'd said she had done a little bit of comfort eating over the weekend after she'd had some um, bad news in regards to her mum, but um, nothing too damaging. Um, but other than that, it, it was really positive. We was just talking about how positive week one had been and, and how we managed to pull that through into the weekend. Uh, nice. We saw how we previously, when we'd done restricted diets, uh, we used to kind of like, well, this is something I said that like I used to crave. Um, takeaways at the weekend because my, my week was so restricted and I used to be like oh I'm really looking forward to this meal this meal this meal um, and then as soon as I'd finished that challenge I'd just I'd fall back into a downward spiral whereas this weekend because I'd had a variety of food throughout the week and still managed to have a good loss I was still motivated throughout the weekend um, nice. and then one of the other issues was um maybe not hitting protein as often as we could, but then we spoke about different ways to meet that, like by eating lots of fish, and we spoke about different types of, of ways to help around that. Nice. Sounds good. We had a good group then. Yeah. Any, uh, was any, meet any new people in the group? Or yeah. All, yeah, all new people? Yeah, all new for me. Nice, nice, good. And for what, what went, so what was the main thing that went well for you in the week, last week, the, pushed into the weekend was it just knowing that you had you could do the um, macros or yeah I think I think because I'd been so invested into week one and I'd really thrown myself into it and um I'd, I'd stuck to the macros and I'd kind of been surprised at what foods I could enjoy whilst using the app um so that really carried through for me and, and rather than looking forward to oh I'll get a Chinese or an Indian I was looking forward to making the meals and and mm. Because I'd been having tasty foods, I knew I could still have a tasty meal at the weekend rather than it being a restricted, boring, plain chicken and rice, for example. <laughs> I was having chicken and rice with flavour because I was allowed it. Um, so yes, it's it was that motivated me, and obviously I really enjoy the classes. Yeah. Like that and that since I've been 
a mum um, and I went back to work off mat leave, I really struggled to, to find time to exercise without having mum guilt. Like I'd always have in my head, right, I'm going to come home um, and then I'll go to the gym after I've sorted of the little girl. Like, and then I never went. I never went back out because like she, she's a crying, don't go, don't do this, stay with me, play with me. And mm. it was just excuse. It was just excuses really that I weren't adapting my life to fit in around making the changes I wanted to make. But then obviously I found this and the classes in the morning are working really well. I think something you said there, Jessica, which is really important. I think if there's one thing that to start with when you're taking this kind of flexible eating approach, which is a really significant step to take, is that idea where it's, uh, I think I can't remember the exact phraseology you used, but it's, it's giving yourself permission to eat everything is such a liberating thing to do or anything that you want to do. Because the second we start putting permission on food intake, that's where we start to get negative associations with that. Like you are allowed to eat anything. Okay, so anytime that you find, this is ties in with the myth component of what we were discussing before. Anytime you find yourself saying, I shouldn't eat that, I should eat that, you're using very absolute terms around food or any kind of behavior around nutrition or exercise. I think that's where if you're, you know, you're journaling through this process, trying to learn things, if you use absolute language, generally it's wrong in terms of like, maybe there's a myth behind it that's perpetuated that. So like you were saying before about, you, can't, you know, like the, the, the belief is that you can't eat takeouts and lose weight. Well, it's kind of, okay, is it gonna, is it more difficult to track takeouts? Yes. Is it more difficult to, um, you know, to, to control food intake if food's really tasty and delicious? Yes. But if we give ourselves permission, then at least we don't need to feel guilty and negative about consuming that food, which then helps with this element of control around that. Because, you know, if we have permission to do something, then it's not taboo. If you watch the Friends episodes, you know, it's not a taboo thing, which then adds to that kind of, um, that kind of guilt and fear and then like the naughtiness around it. And then we start to hide our eating behaviors because we feel like we shouldn't do it. And then we feel judged. And then when we feel judged, we feel negative about ourselves. You know, so like we shouldn't ever judge ourselves for eating something we should be allowed to eat. We should be mindful of how much we consume and when we consume it and everything else. But we shouldn't ever feel like we need to give ourselves permission. So the fact that flexible dieting does give us permission, we have to accept that as well. So for a lot of people who feel like they're writing off certain foods because they shouldn't or should, shouldn't, can, can't, will, won't, all of that language around food or themselves and their goals, just, you know, dig in a little bit deeper and figure out where that kind of comes from. Because it could be a myth, you know, it could be previous experiences, like you said about restricted diets and the chicken and rice thing as well. But I think that's a really huge overarching theme of that little, um, your little bit of insight there is the idea of giving yourselves permission because it's hugely important to take that guilt away from food. 100%. Lovely to hear the good news, and Jessica, keep her up, keep her up. And good to hear the group and well as well. Um, and thanks for chatting to us. Next, I got up here is Melissa S. is happy to speak on behalf of her group. Melissa yeah. S., you, there you go. Um, yeah, so one of the things we sort of talked about was that we feel like it's been ingrained in us since we were kids that we're not allowed to leave food on our plate. <laughs> and so we were saying, like, one of our battles is kind of like leaving food and saying no to food because we're so used to being told right now you can't you can't have put into you do this you can't leave the table till you finished everything that's on your plate and so we were saying like the battle that we have about if we're around other people and if we've not done the portions ourselves to be able to kind of leave food when we're full i think there's, there's two things kind of entrenched in that which is really interesting one is again just 
the this idea of parents and, and older maybe siblings or family members or whoever raised you in any context having this position of authority and trust where if they tell us to do something we should just implicitly do it without questioning so first and foremost as difficult as it's for a lot of people and i have this to like a more extreme um a more extreme level with a lot of clients who have severe like relationship issues with food it's because actually what we need to do is as, as a root point, I call it the inception principle. Think about where that came from. And then think to yourself, like why we, we know from a, a mechanism, from that perspective, any negative belief that you have, it's like, why should I trust this person other than the fact that I'm related to them? You know, like if you, if you broke your leg, you wouldn't just go to your mom or your dad and be like, right, can you fix my leg for me? Please you go to a hospital, right? Like yeah. what is their right and their reputation, reputations to have that belief so ingrained in your head around nutrition. Now, that's kind of a small example because we know that it comes from the idea of not wanting to waste food, encouraging children to eat better, um, you know, and to eat your greens and eat your vegetables and all that kind of stuff as well. However, I've, I think if children are forced to eat, that can also cause other issues with aversion as well. And, you know, ch children's eating patterns are inherently difficult. You know, you need to encourage them to eat, but if you encourage them and force them to eat, then they'll tend to push back against that as well, because, you know, any parent will tell you that they will. But so you've got the, the other side of it as well. But, um, uh, again, like Rob just said there, it's interesting that there's other cultures you will keep feeding you until you can't clear the plate because it's their perception. So this is a cultural issue. When we get to the heart of it, so anything that you've got a belief around food, I like to take little snippets and then try and extrapolate out to make it more useful to people who maybe don't have that issue, like if they cook for themselves or whatever. Then the um, the thing to think about is that it's like, like that inception principle. Like what is the point of where that comes from, and should we trust that point of view over, say, me or Scott or anyone else talking about psychology or mindset that will come across through through the Octagon Challenge? Okay, because I think it's really difficult to acknowledge that in many of areas of our life we stop our parents maybe having as much of an impact than we would like. You know, we don't we maybe they encourage us to take certain careers, but maybe as we get older we swap and we do what's right for us. Maybe it's relationships, maybe it's how we spend our income, whatever it might be. We take that element of responsibility, but there's all of these little threads that, that, that you realize. And I think the first thing is that like, yeah, we don't like to waste money, but one of the advantages of using a flexible dieting approach is like we, I said last week, I said, what were the three P's? It was protein, portion control and perception. I think were the three about what we were doing three P's, maybe two P's, whatever it was, or awareness anyway. Um, portion sizes like you can still finish everything that's on your plate and still hit your macros so that's where it comes down to saying like if i know i'm going to finish that well what can i do really simple strategy from a purely nuts and bolts what you can do type way if you make a pan of food portion it out leave some in the pan fill your plate put it on the table if it's then something that's non-perishable put it in your fridge have it for lunch the next day if it's in front of you you are more inclined to eat it all the research shows bigger portions on bigger plates increase calorie intake right we know this right Especially if you're, you know, if you're at like um, people who have family dinners, if that's the culture at which they're the, um, the culture at which like family dinners, if you're talking and having conversations, it become quite difficult to regulate your eating behaviors if you're grazing on, you know, whatever it might be. Nessa's just said, uh, Vanessa has just said there a really interesting point, which is the other thing I was going to lead on to. Like when you've grown up and like, you know, I'm from a very working class family. I was always told to eat your meat first because it's the most expensive part of your meal, right? But as I've got older and I've become you know, more affluent and more in control of my own eating. We have to also accept that maybe our situations change now. And yes, we don't want to waste money, but we've got something bigger that we want to achieve. And therefore we can be more thrifty in other ways, i.e. measuring, retraining ourselves to measure out appropriate portions and cook the appropriate amount of foods rather than just the old habits, the old recipes or whatever it might be. So part of that is an acceptance that as we've got older, we need to take more personal responsibility 
and to kind of take the baton on and say, no, actually, now we live in a food-rich environment. Now we've got Uber Eats. Like none of those things were around when we were children, right? Well, at least not for me anyway. You know, the, the closer you get, you might get like Pizza Hut delivery and it'd take like three hours to get there and it'd always be stolen by your neighbours on the council estate I was from anyway. So the, the, um, the, the, point of, the point of that is that, you know, sometimes we have to accept that things society has changed and we need to be adaptable to that. So like, you know, think about those portion sizes, think about the inception principle of where those things come from and why should we trust them? Um, and again, it's not to be like, you know, it's not saying your parents are always wrong in every situation, but if we can question that for a lot of people, it helps break down those barriers in terms of structuring our own systems and our own beliefs and our own truths that help us then kind of calm those fears around that. But ultimately, if it ain't on the plate, you're less likely to eat it. So if you do struggle with that, even if you do struggle with understanding when you feel full, for example, a lot of people don't know when they feel full. They, forget, they think that lack of fullness, like being overly full, is like some negative thing. Again, is one where people uh, really struggle with. Eating speed's another one as well, that Katie's just put there as well. Like people eat fast. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily believe in the whole, like, you know, if you eat too fast, your hunger doesn't catch up with you. But I think that whilst you're trying to learn to slow down, chew, enjoy your food, appreciate what's in front of you. You know, it's like, I'm one of the most guilty people in the world. Like if I've been overly restrictive with my diet for some reason, sometimes just because I've been busy and I've not had a chance to have and enjoy anything, then you put a pizza in front of me. I can eat like a full pizza in like 25 minutes. It's quite an impressive thing to witness. Um, impressive and disturbing in equal measure. But like appreciating what you have in front of you and being mindful of what you're consuming as well can help with that. So I think portion control on the plate, even things like using smaller plates, it sounds silly, but... Um, um, it sounds silly, but it's helpful. But again, even just being mindful and present in what you're eating, you know, even this sort of translates to eating out as well. You know, if you go to a restaurant and you're trying to make a lower calorie choice because, you know, you're trying to make it fit your macros. Again, if or I always think like trans, translate that to if you went around to your friends for dinners and they made you like a really beautiful salad, you would eat that and you'd be really grateful for it. But in a restaurant, you wouldn't order the salad or you might not order the salad because the perception is like, look at all this other tasty, amazing food. It's still trying to appreciate you know, and have gratitude for how, for what we're, what we have in front of us. Not in a, not in a way that's like, becomes negative, you know, like, oh, I should eat all of this food because, you know, and I should just appreciate this because I'm so lucky to have food on my table. Okay, that's fine. Like, you know, we should be grateful for that sort of stuff. But, you know, in terms of, in terms of like food enjoyment and food awareness is something I need to work on personally as well. So we all still have to work on things. You know, I, I will wolf down tasty food and then like 10 minutes later, I'm looking at someone else's plate, like really, really, jealous because like i haven't got it anymore so yeah i think in all of that there's a few threads that people can pull on and pick on and just think about what it is that you really struggle with with leaving food on a plate if it's something that you struggle with because sometimes it is just because it's there in portion control sometimes it's belief sometimes it's a lack of awareness sometimes it is eating too quickly so you don't really have any like idea of what we've consumed and um, particularly in like a restaurant if you're like eating like a tapas type thing it's like i yeah, like an octopus I'm just like, right, just give me as much food as I can and then we'll see what happens. Um, so yeah, that's kind of all I have to say about that. Yeah, Ooh. I think, like just did a poll as well to see what is what people are thinking about wasting food. So people don't feel guilty if they don't finish their food. Is that still the case if it's someone making food for you as well? Is anyone you like can share some tips on it? Because I think, Melissa, do you feel guilty when it's someone else is food or like eating out more than your own creation yeah i'm all, like I, I was saying as well to the girls i was in the room with, i'm quite lucky because i live on my own so i don't 
I don't have like anyone else there sort of tempting me with their food and if it's not in the house I can't eat it um so I'm all right when it's just me but I was saying as well that I'm a teacher and my classroom is right next to the kitchen and literally every morning I walk in and the, the cook's like do you want a cake do you want a potato like anything she's cooking she, she asks me constantly and I feel bad saying no to her because she's like why not she takes it like really offensively so yeah That's problem, <laughs> well, again there's, there's it's really interesting that because there's a deeper level here as well which goes beyond the plate which is this idea of like primates in particular, you know, higher primates, primates, higher homo sapiens, part of their social dynamic and their social bonding is gift giving. And in the way that manifests itself is food. That's why people have such a hard time of rejection of food. So when you have, you're, when you're given a food and you reject it on some subconscious subliminal, deeper primate part of our brain is like, what, what you don't care about me? Like, why are you refusing this? I'm trying to do something nice. Why don't you want me to do nice things for you, Melissa? Why do you hate me? Right. There's that part of your brain. Um, that kicks in. So again, in terms of those strategies, there's a couple of things you can work on. So, I mean, it's not about wasting food and things as well. Just be like, I don't know what the, what's the dinner lady's name? The, the cook's name, sorry. Uh, Georgia. Oh, Georgia. That's really great. Like I've just had a massive breakfast. I'm not hungry right now, but if you could save that for me for later, I'll come grab yeah. it later. She's I happy. I to say to her, offer me a fruit and I'll say yes. Like, <laughs> a piece of fruit and yes. <laughs> and, and that's, and that's, that's a, a viable strategy. But I think at the heart of all of it as well is like she's cooked something, like a piece of fruit's not something she's created. Yeah. Whereas she's created the other thing and wants to give that to you. You know, it's so like try that as a strategy as well. Just say, oh, I really appreciate you making that for me. I'm really stuffed from breakfast now. But if you just pop it to one side, I'll grab it later on. And then yeah. she'll forget about it. And then it'll yeah. <laughs> So again, quite often, whether it's friends, whether it's family, you know, particularly like older relatives, like, you know, like nans and stuff as well, if, especially if they've retired and got to that age and all they do and all they know and their upbringing has been around being like the matriarch of the family in the kitchen cooking all day. Their only, their only outlet quite a lot of the time for love giving is food. So it's difficult to say no from that perspective. So it's not necessarily that we say no, it's not being irritable. It's trying to understand that and put ourselves in someone else's shoes, being empathetic towards that and then just being a little bit, taking responsibility and again sometimes with family members it might be that we get grotty and angry and we shout like you know i don't want that i'm trying to lose weight right well actually one why is it their responsibility to care about what you're consuming we need to stop passing the blame sorry guys if you don't want to hear that but it's the truth we take responsibility for our own eating and two if we are in that situation let's maybe take a step back and have a diplomatic conversation and if it's something that is a, a recurring problem then the other alternative is I've had this as well with um, particularly when like, you know, I've never, I'm like hands up and say, I've never really struggled with my weight in terms of being overweight, except when, you know, I was trying to force it to be a powerlifter. But when I used to diet for bodybuilding shows, my friends would constantly try and get me to eat things that weren't relative to what I was trying to achieve at the time. And I just get to the point where I said, look, I really appreciate that you want me to take part in this, but why is this important for you for me to eat? Ask someone that question. Like if it's family members, say to them, like, why is it important that I eat this? Because it's quite interesting when you act that and you reflect it back on them, the, the answers that they come up with, as opposed to just protesting straight away, be like, I really appreciate you want me to eat that cake or, you know, eat that meal, but I don't feel hungry. I don't really want it right now. Um, so, like, why do you want me to eat this? Or because, you know, because I want you to eat it. No, no, but, like, why? It's quite interesting when, um, when there's a culture around that within a family, and it's a common one. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, again, we have to, if we're going to change beliefs and narratives around how things are done, we need to help people raise questions in their own heads because that's often more effective than telling them why we're not doing something. It's to get them to think about why they're doing it as well. 
we have this thing called a writing reflex and I suffer with it terribly and I do it on these calls all the time because it's a very time constrained kind of um, uh, Q&A. When someone says to me, I've got a problem, my writing reflex is to come up with a solution to that problem or if someone tries to help me, I protest against it. Quite often the way to navigate those things is to, is to actually try not to answer the question and be like, yes or no. It's just like, again, it's, it's open dialogue. And if it's that important to you, particularly with partners and people, when people live with people, like people live with people, partners are always ordering takeouts and we're really struggling with that. And maybe they're not being as supportive as we think they could, particularly if they're the kind of people who are like, ah, go on, go on, go on. Not just once, but like repeatedly because they're trying to justify and justify their own eating behaviors because maybe they feel guilty about it. And if they can get someone else to take part in it, then they feel less guilty. That's a big one as well. I'm sure you'll all recognize when you're trying to regulate your food intake. That's when the conversation needs to be shifted somewhere else. So if you are having challenging conversations with some person, whether it's about food, alcohol, takeouts, don't, don't have the conversation in that inflationary emotional moment. Take yourself out of that environment. Go, right, let's go for a walk and have a conversation about this. You know, and, and like, look, I'm really trying to struggle with this. It, I would really appreciate your help. And I don't want to have an argument about it. Like you eat the takeouts, you do what you want. But I would really appreciate it right now, whilst I'm struggling with this part of trying to work on my relationship with food, and get to come to terms with the fact that I struggle with this. Like if you didn't just poke the bear a little bit, you know? Um, so again, in, in a wider context, distancing yourself from friends is, is, is one way to do it. But again, we shouldn't have to do that if we've got really good friends, we should be able to have a calm conversation with them, but it's not the conversation, it's where we often have the conversation. That's the real challenge to have in terms of navigating those issues. Because if you're just doing it in a bar, full of 10 friends about alcohol, well, everyone's going to jump in because every, it's, it's that kind of group thing and that culture around that. Where if you take people out of that, um, um, yeah, and, and people do think it's bizarre and it is weird and it is something that's challenging. But when you think about it from the perspective of, if I'm doing a negative behavior or something I see as being a negative behavior, is it easier for me to do that negative behavior if that's validated by everybody else I'm with? Or is it, more, or is it not, right? So it is, right? Like if I if I wanna if I wanna do something silly or frivolous, I'm more likely to do that if I've got my friends with, with me, team idiocy, rather than, you know, I'm talking about extreme being a rugby lad type days, rather than if it was just me on my own and everyone going, actually, no. But again, it's the culture and, and the fear around that that we've got growing up around, you know, in every in every environment we have a certain uh, way we navigate those things. And we have to just be aware of it. And then if we're not happy with that that dynamic, firstly, try and change it. And if we can't change it, then we might want to avoid it, you know, or the way around, avoid it for a bit and try and change it at the same time. Not mutually exclusive, you can do both. Um, and that's it. Like Celine just said there, you know, she, she doesn't judge, she doesn't, you, don't, you shouldn't have to justify your choices for one. And I've said that repeatedly. It's something I said a while ago, Like you shouldn't have to justify your choices to anybody if you choose to do or not do something. But the way to, to, to back that back is to say, like, why is this important to you that I eat this or don't eat this? You know? Yeah. yeah. It'll be interesting. Is anyone here going to any recent examples? I'll, I'll share this poll now. Um, so most of you have had this experience. Who's had a recent one? Maybe this weekend where your friends or family have made you feel bad for wanting to make a better choice or not overindulge or something. Anyone here? Tracy on the train. Hello, hello, hello. I think you're on mute. So with that, so yeah, 61% have said friends have made them feel bad for eating, drinking less than them. So the, the, the reflective point on that as well is, and it's, it's important to be honest, because I think from a point of honesty, where maybe we've done that to other people, 
right? Maybe we've done it. We can at least reflect and try and understand where someone's coming from. So if you've got that personal experience, it's not about beating yourself up for doing it because we all have a tendency to try and manipulate people to doing things that maybe we want to do to make us feel better about ourselves, part of the human condition, unfortunately. So what I would say is then, if you felt bad or you've had a negative emotion about something like that, why did it make you feel bad? Rather than just saying, I feel bad and like basking in the emotion, let's take a step out, take a step out of that and say, like, why did that make me feel bad for making my own choices? You know, what was it, un- what was it underneath that that really drove that negative emotion? Was it because we felt we'd be judged for doing it? Because again, we'd strip it back to its basic sort of, like, no one has the right to judge me, right? Particularly if they're struggling with things themselves as well, you know, we should never feel judged. Um, and again, if we're around friends who are really judgmental, do we really even want to be friends with those people? Like, to an extreme extent as well, you know? Um, so yeah, I always think that trying to get into that idea of like why I feel an emotion rather than just like, I feel guilty. Okay, well, why should I? Why should you feel bad? What was it specifically they said? Was it because they were being unsupportive? Is it our perception of that? Because sometimes that can happen, right? You know, sometimes someone can ask an innocent question. Oh, I don't want dessert. Oh, why aren't you having dessert? Or don't, don't judge me because we've got a perception of what they mean by that question. So quite often we can feel negative because we haven't given ourselves permission to eat what we want to eat. And by refusing that perceived permission, we're doing something wrong. Again, it all ties back in with that as well. Um, so yeah, just be aware that I would encourage people in your journaling. A lot of people say we encourage journaling. Like if you don't know what we're journaling about, if you feel bad about something, okay, I felt bad today about X, Y, Z. Well, why did I feel bad about that? Was it a reasonable thing to feel bad about? Or was it from some other uh, belief, concept, idea, perception, whatever it is that has triggered that, that is irrational, but is so ingrained in our brain that we don't even really have a way to um, have a way to navigate that without digging inside it a little bit. Yeah, here's a good one, Paul. Here's a good poll for people to answer as well. well is have health. you ever changed someone's mind on an opinion they had about health and fitness? For example, someone said their chocolate bar's bad, Slim and Wood says so. Like, have you ever successfully changed someone's mind? I, I find this very, I don't think I've done much of this to my friends. They tend not to believe you. Well, no, maybe no, yeah, but back in the day, you just chatting to your friends. It's probably one of the hardest things. Someone's got a fact or a belief. Do we bother engaging in that, such as, no, Slimming World's not bad, chocolate bar's fine, macros and all this. Do we even bother going down that route? Or do we save ourselves and go, yeah, cool, like whatever? Because we could be ending up fighting our friends for so long about this stuff and they will never, they will never budge. Um, a few more to vote and I'll share it. As expected, Dr. P, the data is coming in as we thought. 70% has not done this all successfully. And if anyone anyone got experiences like where there's a cho- chocolate bar slimming world example, who said that? Where are you? Gabby, let, let, talk to us about this chat. Where are you? Are you in the room? Can you see her? <laughs> there's too many screens, guys. Gabby. I don't think it was me. <laughs> no, it was Gabby. Yeah, Gabby Fletcher. It's me. Sorry, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Gabby. Get on yet. What happened then? Tell us about this chat. Um, just eating, like, out and about and just eating. She was like, oh, I can't eat that because it's Slimming World. Ooh. Yeah, and then you um, walked her back. And I said, well, you can still eat stuff without, like, you can still eat whatever you want and still lose weight. And she was like, no, you can't because all these sins and keeps going back to these sins and how, but she can eat pasta 
yeah. and eat mm-hmm. this and eat that and it's all free. You can see that straight away where the first thing I talked about today was that idea of permission and being allowed to eat things takes that pressure off. So straight away that goes against one of the fundamental tenets of any kind of behavior change when it comes to nutrition or health is firstly giving yourself permission to, to learn and understand. So yeah, I love that. Like 70% um, 70% of people there on the poll have obviously not had any a, a positive outcome from trying to change people's minds. Um, I think there's there's a couple of things within that. One is it's, you know, even in internet land, it's even more detached and more difficult. I think it's as I've got older and more experienced and like you build things like this behind me and you work with certain levels of people and you get involved with projects, you have this kind of like authority, I guess, that people then inherently trust more of what you're trying to say. Whereas if it's just you and your mates, you know, and even now some of my friends will push back against me around certain things, but they know this is kind of my life. So yeah. But interestingly, my parents still won't listen to me about nutrition and health stuff. They still know better because, you know, they spawned me in some way. Um, so, like, it is, it's always quite interesting. I think the best we can ever do is, instead of trying to change people's, change people's minds, is to just educate, educate and explain without it being confrontational. I think a lot of the time is when we go through something, when we're doing really well with something or we're learning something new, it's not, it's, it's the difference between educating other people and letting them formulate their own ideas rather than like, you know, we love, we love the, um, we love what we do. And like, we preach the message of what we're doing here, but we don't want to turn it into like kind of a cult dynamic, which is, you know, like a lot of people when they learn about flexible dieting and they see results, it can be very easy to be not judgmental is not the right word, but kind of like, Oh, you're so silly for not believing this, or you're so silly for believing that. And that's not necessarily what we mean, but that might be the tone at which we come across from across with, because again, we've got to remember that many people who've been through this have, have followed every diet type thing under the sun. So when we get that aha light bulb moment, we do want to help people and we do have this enthusiasm to make them feel better and change their minds. But ultimately, you know, even in even in my role, if I get chatting to um, I remember I was getting I was getting laser eye surgery last January, and the woman who was the the assistant was trying to convince, trying to tell me about nutrition whilst I'm having laser eye surgery. And trying to tell me about the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. And I'm like, I'm sat there going like, oh my God. And like, you don't want to be like, do you know who I am? But those words very nearly left my mouth. Because I was just like, I'm sat there like, <laughs> eyelid lifted up. And this, this woman's trying to argue with me about nutrition. And it's like not even a conversation I wanted to have. I have, I just kind of flippantly said, Again, to my thinking, it was like, yeah, it's nonsense. It doesn't really work that way. And then just thought I'd get on with my day. Didn't realize that she was going to take this super personally and then started trying to tell me that because she had a master's degree in something to do with eyes, that automatically she was an authority on all things um, nutrition. And maybe she could have been, you know, maybe she could be super wide read and know loads about nutrition. But in that situation, she was wrong. But the, the way to deal with that wasn't to be like, you're wrong admittedly to say that my temper was a little bit shorter than it might have been because I was having surgery at the time. I'd hope most of you guys would understand is fairly reasonable. Um, so, but in that situation there, the best thing that we can ever do is to question and educate, Oh, this is why I'm doing it. And this is what I found useful to me. Oh, maybe go and do some reading on this as opposed to it being about you, you deflect onto another person. Um, or if someone's telling you, if you're being preached at the other way about slimming world or low carb or whatever it might be. Okay. So why is that the case? And actually, by asking more questions rather than protest, protestation, protesting, there we go, we'll just go with that, protesting against and justifying our own nonsense, 
you will very quickly find the limits of people's knowledge when you just ask a question rather than rather than trying to give them answers is what I would normally do. So on internet land, if someone tells me I'm wrong about something, I'm like, oh, so why do you think that? Or where did you get that from? All right, I got it from some quack practitioner. All right, cool. Well, that person I think is a quack. Here's a load of readings that might shake your mind on that. Go and educate yourself. Not in a patronizing go and educate yourself type way, but in a not, you know, I mean like, because most people's ver version of education, educating themselves in the world of health and fitness is jumping on YouTube for 10 minutes or watching a documentary on Netflix. And apparently that means more than a nutrition degree, a master's degree and a PhD these days, because you've done 10 minutes research on, you know, whatever it is you might have looked at. Um, another interesting question to ask people if they are trying to push their nutrition dogma onto you is to ask them, is there anything that you, any evidence that I could present you with that would change your mind? And if people answer no to that question, then there's no point even having a conversation with them. If someone, if you can't, if they can't even come up with an idea or a concept of things they would have to be presented with to change their opinion on nutrition, then they haven't, you can't even have an argument with somebody because how are you supposed to change someone's mind if they don't even know what changing their mind looks like? So for example, like inwardly, if someone said to me, well, what evidence would you have to have to, to make you believe in the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, which by the way, is a nonsense thing. I would have to say that someone would have to show me that they consistently ate in a calorie surplus entirely from fat and, and lost weight, which doesn't happen. You know, so I've got a clear hypothesis of what I would need to see in order to change my mind on that model, right? Which doesn't happen. Um, so, or like, you know, a low carb diets are better for performance. Okay, well, in that case, I'd need to see evidence in the scientific literature that low carb diets led to better performance that wasn't funded by, supported by, or tinkered in some way by pro- ketogenic researchers. Again, everyone has their biases, right? Um, so yeah, I think, sorry, that's a bit of a segue away, but might help with the whole myth-busting component of things. You know, if you are having things pushed at you, one question the authority and question mine. Anyone who wants to question anything I say, I'm more than happy to back it up and give you references. I've written a book on the subject, actually, about weight management and it's fully referenced scientific text. Scott, I meant to talk to you about this the other day. I'll, get, I'll send a copy over to you if you want to link it out or whatever. Um, it's a pretty long book and it's pretty boring, but it's fully referenced academic text. Well, um, you are of the, um, we need to launch it, the 121 health and fitness myths yeah. that yeah, we so send out to everybody. Yeah, so Scott, Scott put a, an amazing book together and something that like, I just kind of scanned over and edited and things as well. And it's talked about 100, like 121, is it? Myths, common ones with like a scientific reference as to why those things don't always hold up to be true. The problem is with a lot of myths, it's quite often intelligent people who've got an agenda come up with them and they have a little thread to pull on. So there's an element of scientific truth within there. There's something that sounds sciencey. So like before, like the fact that I said the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity makes it sound really sciencey because that's what the scientific literature calls it, but it's got no scientific basis whatsoever. But science has to name something to refute it. And by naming it to refute it, it then sounds like it's got some efficacy within it as well. I think that sort of makes sense, you know? Um, well, you see this? A, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the classic one is, you know, keto makes you burn fat, and obviously you burn more fat. But then the flip side is, yeah, but you're eating way more fat. So obviously you burn more fat. I mean, people think then keto, fat loss mode, and then you burn fat as you feel well, then you're going to lose more fat. But then 80% yeah. of their calories are from fat. So, of yeah. course... Yeah. Uh, do you know what I mean? So there's always like the side, flip side to it. Hmm. Um, 
Do we want to do a quick myths thing? Has anyone got any myths they want to fire in the chat box? If that's stimulating well, there as well. Yeah, not even myths. Something you believe. Like we wanted to be open thing. Nothing. Yeah. Don't feel like anything's a silly thing to think. But like yeah. this is an open platform, and Dr. P will supply evidence and research that's non-biased. So if there's anything you believe that you've been told and you kind of stick to, or there's limitations. I think someone, Tyler, you said something about your teacher said if you eat too fast, it makes spread into sweet stuff or something. And maybe that's still with you now. Maybe you want some clarity on, like, does that even impact things? Um, yeah, anything. What do we believe? What do, what's a myth I believe? I, I used to, you know, to be fair, I used to fall into the, I, I actually fell into Martin Birkin's intermittent fasting hall when I was younger because he did come up with a huge web page with a lot of stuff that sounded right. And then, you know, you'd, you'd read it and you go, that makes sense. If I eat in the morning, my cortisol is higher. Obviously, that sounds like a bad thing, right? Yeah. So, you kind of, it sounds good, but then, yeah. Okay, let's have a look here. Okay, let's see. Because some of these, so just before we get into this, some of these will be like one of those things which are like, I'll do this and I'll put my head in my hands. And it's not because it's a bad question. It's because there's an absolute rabbit hole of conflict of information. Like I said before, quite often, a lot of these myths, they pull on threads of truth, but then they extrapolate them out to nonsense. So trying to... Sorry, go on. Yeah, what, what we do is I'll say something, you say if it's a myth or not, and then if oh, people nice. want to read up more, we'll show them the research in the 121 Myths book or okay. more. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Okay. I hate this because I, I don't I know like you hate it, but you're doing answers. it. Oh, ah, listen to me. Go on you, then. You say yes or no. Um, I've been told to fast by my stepmom. I know it lowers intake, but is there any benefit to doing it other than less food consumption? I'm assuming you mean fat loss, Lee. Is there any benefits to fasting for fat loss, Dr. P? Yes or no? versus a traditional calorie deficit. You're going to go on probabilities, not absolutes. No, there right. isn't. Probably, <laughs> in most cases, no. There we go. All sweating like that. I can't do it. Honestly, um, I mean, as a scientist, like dealing in absolutes is something I never do. I always deal in like words like context. You know, okay, you can do, you could do what we just did. All right, okay. My friend did keto and ended up with gallstones. Mm, interesting. I don't know. Yeah, high fat, you know, stress yeah. in the bile duct. Yeah, 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 it does happen. Does water do anything for hunger? Ah, ah, yes. Yes or no? Yes, but just like not as much that, as that, people that, would that, do. That. Not as much as people would think. Potentially yes, but not as much as people would think. Context: oh. You can't just drink water all day and not eat food and expect not to be hungry. Do you see what I mean? I'm have to Do you see what I mean, guys? <laughs> okay, so that's yes. Yep. Watch me squirm. <laughs> um, uh, okay, breakfast is breakfast like a king, lunch like a queen, and dinner like a pope, right? Was that um, pope? Um, bread is the devil, obviously. Top part, yeah. is bread the devil? Part? No, no, it's not. Unless you've got gluten intolerance, and it's going to make you, you know. Then again, see context. This there's, there's hey. no, there's a point. There's a point. There's a really quick point I want to make. What you will notice here is anyone in the fitness industry who tells you there's a black and white answer to anything probably don't listen to them. Right, because even in things here that are really obvious, there's always a, there's always a caveat. There's always a caveat. So if you're trying to myth bust, think about that. Think about the fact that I'm squirming at having to say yes or no to things that are quite obviously yes or no. <laughs> Truth, myth or not. <laughs> Emma, Emma Baines, any truth around eating grapefruit or pineapple before a meal to help break down fats? Asking for a friend. Uh, no, maybe. Okay. Well, no, it's not fats, actually. Quite often it's protein because they contain a thing called bromelain, which is meant to help with protein digestion. But I've never seen any significant efforts, never seen any significant evidence that it has a significant impact. Okay, Green loves a grapefruit tea. Um, Rob Ward, no carbs. <laughs> 
uh, bodybuilder inside your guy, guys. Um, no carbs in the evening, which I still oh, don't know. Yeah. Myth, Rob. Yeah, I'm absolutely carbs in the evening. If you want a nice juicy pear in the evening, have one. I found uh, pears the other day from France. What they call it? I can't remember. Best pear I've had in my life. Um, eating at different times of day. Does any fit? Does any fit make any difference? Does any any meal schedules timings make a difference? Polly, uh, right? Okay, I'm going to choose my words carefully on this one. Um, they do make a difference, but not in terms of overall. They, they might make a difference in terms of energy levels and concentration and hunger, which then might have an impact on energy intake. But from a purely energetic perspective, no, they don't. So in terms of your calories in, calories out, no. But in terms of how it regulates calories in, calories out, yes. Okay. Here's a good one for you. No. Does fasting help repair your body because it's not digesting food? Um, autophagy is a complex subject and one that I might have to do a separate thing on. But for the sakes of what we're worried about, no, it doesn't. Okay. In certain situations, like people who've got serious like autoimmune digestive issues, Longer periods of not eating that though trigger inflammation within the gut might be beneficial. But again, the jury is very much out on that one. It's not, it's not a yes. Most people don't worry about it. Okay, happy days. Okay, Melissa asks, what about cleanses? Eat watermelon cleanses on Chio Netflix. Don't care what it is. You can't cleanse your body. It's not a scientific term, it doesn't mean anything. Myth. So so it's true, yeah. Okay. Chocolate and dairy create acne or bad skin, Bianca? Ooh, that's an interesting one. I think it's contextual in the context the context of the whole diet. I think people who probably eat more chocolate and dairy, at times they would do that. Maybe it's to do with hormonal regulation, like around menstrual cycles. So I don't think it's causal is what I would say. I think it's correlational. So if women get bad skin because of hormones, that then, then at times of the month when they tend to eat more things like dairy and chocolate and ice cream, then maybe there's a correlational thing there as well. Mechanistically, Unless someone's got an inflammatory condition, i.e. like a dairy allergy, like a genuine allergy, then maybe in that situation there. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen, what I would say is experientially, I've had it reported to me a lot, but mechanistically, I'm not entirely sure how that would take place other than if there's a, an intolerance or an allergy, which you might know about anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. I navigated that one like a politician there, didn't I? Um, but basically, nice. most people know, I think it's more correlational than it is causal. Okay, Dr. B is now on it. Do Indian people need to eat less carbs as they're more insulin resistant? Oh, okay. That's an interesting one. So um, insulin resistance. One, to make the assumption that someone is insulin resistant without getting their, um, what's it called? Hang on one second. My brain's just gone numb. It's getting late. To make an assumption someone is insulin resistant based purely on their ethnicity, is something we shouldn't do. If you feel like you're insulin resistant, then they should. Even if someone is insulin resistant, i.e. type 2 diabetes, that doesn't mean they should avoid carbohydrates. What they should probably do is moderate carbohydrate intake, which most people should anyway from a caloric restriction perspective, and actually then focus on things like whole grains and stuff as well as an overall healthy balanced diet. That's general advice. Would I say that someone who's insulin resistant should reduce their carbohydrate intake? I would say Yes, but only because the chances are if you're insulin resistant, it means you're carrying excess body fat, which means you lose to new body fat anyway. And we need to moderate food intake, generally speaking, both mm-hmm. fats and carbohydrates, not to pick on the carbs there. Um, yeah. Interestingly, if someone is insulin resistant, do some exercise. The best thing you can do for your body if you're insulin resistant. Stimulates glucose uptake out the bloodstream more potently than insulin does, right? So, um, yeah. Happy days. Mo- mo- movement is medicine in that situation there. Nice. I recently read that different blood types should have different diets no absolute myth no evidence for that whatsoever okay um 
Okay, so removing the barrier. So eating the same thing every day encourages you to eat less as you've removed the temptation, excitement, and why you'll choose to... That's not for saying, okay, fair enough. Uh, why are we causing... Uh, me and my, uh, we Just closer. We will cause Dr. P pain. Okay, that's the that's the point here. Um, <laughs> Tiffany Tracy, Biscoff's the only food that contains all relevant nutrients. You can live Biscoff alone, 100% true. I've heard that the new blue zones are the new Biscoff zones. Yeah. So big, big, big move. Is pina colada one eighty five a day? Tell you ask what it's nearly half your calorie intake. Let me tell you what. Um, Doctor P, sweating still. Uh, Shouldn't have walked great today. <laughs> is sugar addictive? No. No. Oh, nice. Is cheese addictive? No. <laughs> It tastes, it tastes nice and it lights up pleasure centers in our brain at best you could say it's got addictive like tendencies but no one's breaking into as they're at three o'clock in the morning to go <laughs> to and Lyle. it's not addictive it's not a drug despite no, what people will tell you again it's letting people off the hook we like the taste of stuff that's fine cheese will light up pleasure centers in the brain it's got a real high what we would call um uh, food filia scale so like we get a lot of enjoyment from it a lot of people do anyway but it doesn't mean again we have to be careful with language use because if we believe we're addicted to something then we believe we've got no control over it it's got negative connotations where the reality is we probably just really like the taste of something and that's not again if we accept we can have it moderate it fit it in then it's usually a better approach at least initially mm. rather than just you know being scared of sugar and again when we talk about sugar what type of sugar are you talking? Fructose, gl- glucose, like... Um, are we addicted to... Am I addicted to... Lactose, glactose, all of that. All right, what about this one? Does apple cider vinegar help with digestion and fat loss? Um, so, doesn't help with fat loss. May, and again, may, small amounts of evidence, but I'm not convinced is what I would say. Probably not, but may help if people have got some forms of stomach issues because theoretically speaking, here's how it goes. So obviously your stomach's a really acidic environment. Sometimes your stomach doesn't stimulate acid production. So there's a belief, and I mean belief, but I've seen it, what's the word? Um, Anecdotally, at least anyway, and there's enough mechanistic stuff to be interesting, that it might stimulate the stomach to create a more acidic environment. But what I would say is that like, there's a potential there, but most of the reasons that people have like acid reflux and stuff are related to things like stress and poor overall nutrition quality, lack of sleep and all that kind of stuff, rather than taking some like apple cider vinegar and expecting that to be some kind of panacea of, of sort. Didn't, um, didn't so a study would, on this get funded by that Japanese yeah. company? That- so, oh, so that was it as well. So like there is research and this, uh, this is an important point that Scott's just raised actually. When it comes to stuff like apple cider vinegar and lots of other herbal extracts, and not to say that some herbs aren't useful or haven't got rich nutrients or anything, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that a lot of what you would call alternative medicine research that's out there is shockingly funded by corporations that produce and manufacture a lot of these things. There's an inherent bias there for them to get positive results. So whether you choose to believe it or not, that's fine. That's up to you. What I'm saying is that that's why I'm saying the apple cider vinegar stuff is probably 99.9% nonsense, but there's some thread of mechanistic stuff that may have efficacy, but I've just not looked at that research in a while. So I don't want to commit to it. I'd say probably not, but definitely not in terms of fat loss. That's a nonsense. Yeah. Cool. 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 If you under eat your body stores fat because it doesn't know when it will get at the next meal. Um, 
that's myth. Myth. Uh, okay. So you burn more fat when you're cold? Um, both increases and decreases in body temperature can have a very small effect on metabolism. Unless you're talking like, you know, going up and climbing up Everest and then getting lost for a few hours and getting yourself frostbite. No, it's not something that's going to massively have an impact. Like okay. shivering by default is muscle contraction. So yes, your energy expenditure will increase. However, it's not, um, it's not, it's not. Does training in the morning improve? Oh, does training in the morning, Doctor B, improve your metabolism? You're going to be biased because you do evening trainings. So you're going to say the evening is better, aren't you? Um, does I mean all training will in, will transiently increase your metabolism, as in energy expenditure? When we use terms like metabolism, I think it's important again to understand what metabolism means. Metabolism is just the processes within the body that um, that use energy, fundamentally speaking. So, does exercise in the morning increase your metabolism? Yeah. Does exercise in the evening increase your metabolism? Yeah. Does exercise, does it matter when you exercise? No, not really. Um, because again, you might get some transient post-exercise benefits. The only way that I would say that, you know, exercise in the morning might be beneficial is the fact that like, um, they did, they've done some research on this and it was, it was the only way it would be beneficial from fat loss would be if it, if it for somehow at that time of day reduced hunger of a morning maybe or of an evening. So it tended to be individual responses to when people did it was whether they got hungry, more or less hungry after they've exercised. Does that make sense? So not necessarily the morning, but the time of day we exercise might have a differential response depending on lots of other factors like when we've last eaten, how much sleep we've had. Um, These are long yes no's, Paul. I'm sorry, I told you. I told you, all right? Okay, there's a few more, and that you like is there's a lot of opinion. What, what's your opinion on Huel? Or how do you say Huel? Huel. Um, what's my opinion on it? I don't really have one, if I'm being honest. Like, what is it? Just it's, food. It's basically just a complete powdered food. Um, my, do you know, actually, no, I do have an opinion on it. Like, don't drink your calories. Okay. Unless you Please. really have to. Like, if you're struggling to get protein in, then yeah, I talked about this last week. If you're trying to get protein in, then have a protein shake, right? If you've got an incomplete meal, there's no protein in your meal like with oats, have some protein. If you're having a smoothie and there's no protein in it, if you want to get your fruits and veggies in and you hate fruits and veggies, then put some protein in it, right? Drink your calories if it's got a benefit to you in terms of your health. Just having a meal replacement for the sake of it because you can't be bothered to cook or you, it's just because it's convenient, it's doing two things. One is that it's not really changing your behaviors or understanding or education around food, which is one of the key components of behavior change, right? Yeah. So even though I was talking last week about meal prep and I use it, I still know about weights and measures and food quality so that when I do go out into the big bad world when I can't just put something in a shaker or put it in a microwave, I understand what I'm consuming. So there's an element to doing that as well. I have no issue with, you know, I was chatting to a guy yesterday who works like 18-hour shifts, uh, sorry, 12-hour shifts, doesn't get a chance to eat on a shift. Yeah, grab a protein shake. You know, that's fine. Grab some fuel there, but... <laughs> so you're saying you don't like it, yeah? I'm saying that... <laughs> like it. No, I don't mind it. It's a product. It's It's got its usage you know, in some context, but for most people, no, just oh. eat, eat real food. Hate it makes that. you fat, apparently, as well. So I even like... hate terms like real food because people know what it means, but I guarantee you someone will interpret it in a way that I don't mean. I get that a lot from these lives. Dr. P said, do this, and I'm like, no, I didn't say that. Didn't. Yes. That's why I'm so careful about what I say. Guys, okay, one more for you guys. We've gone because we know what time's going on. Paul, listen now. Okay. Uh, where's it gone? I've lost it. Oh, 
Yes or no? <laughs> Can you be born with a naturally faster metabolism? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, medical conditions, loads of medical conditions. For more than one second. Yeah, carry on. Please explain. Yeah, yeah, you can, but does that apply to 99.9% of the population? No, it doesn't, so don't worry about it. <laughs> nice work, guys. Nice work. Paul, you did well. Eh? It's like a mastermind uh, competition, right? Eh? Oh, you do well. Actually, you... Ask me to sum up volumes of scientific research in like different contexts, in different populations, in the word yes or no, or myth or... It's impossible. Well, you did it. Eh? Well, except with cleanses and detoxes. <laughs> <laughs> you did well paul you did well no paul will bring all the evidence you guys by 9 a.m tomorrow so paul enjoy your night what was that sorry i, I switched off then my brain powered down you're gonna bring all the evidence tomorrow same again next week we'll do fat fast we'll do this every week now dr p squirm squirming for the last 10 minutes but guys we do, ver- we do a version for scott as well i don't know what on but nothing wheels that's it really marcus Aurelius. fuck knows Nothing really, Paul. I'm not got your wealth knowledge. Yeah. Um, nice one, nice Melissa, nice, nice Napoleon. Oh yeah, Napoleon actually. Is he a legend? Yes. Are the English propaganda legend uh, masters? Yes. <laughs> Survey fleer. <laughs> Sorry, did this just turn into the uh, Welsh Nationalist Assembly? Just when I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> this is the start of it. Yeah, this, this is the start of it. Um, well, guys, awesome. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, Dr. P, any last words for people going into the day two of week two? Um, just continue the positives from last week. Any any positive habits you've got, anything you did well, remind yourself, write them down, give yourself a little metaphorical or physical pat on the back, depending on your shoulder mobility. I struggle a little bit. Um, and then just, again, anything that you struggled with last week or you feel like you failed with, remember, it's not failure. It's just an opportunity to learn. Reflect upon what you can do better. System structures in place. Build on that awareness now put things in place this week that you can take action on and then build on that again next week. Yes. Go on, Dr. P. And then we want a communal bicep flex because that's what we're <laughs> for, making gains. Uh, Don't have the guns, mate. On my own. On my own. <laughs> well, legends, everyone. Enjoy yourselves. Go to bed. Get off your phones. Ta-da. See you later, guys.